Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Procrastination. We all do it. I haven't been to the gym in over a month, yet every single day I tell myself tomorrow's going to be the day. But let's face it, there are certain things that when you push them off, actually get harder to do. Losing weight, quitting smoking, and saving for retirement. Today's show is brought to you by Prudential. It turns out our brains are hardwired to procrastinate. It's one of the human behaviors that can get in the way of planning your financial future. Don't delay. Learn more at bringyourchallenges.com. Prudential, bring your challenges. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello, welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. I'm Chris Stemp. Thanks for joining us today with another amazing interview where you will no doubt learn something new. And in this episode, we're learning a little bit about the history of the United States. But of course, in true smart people fashion, we're doing it in a little roundabout way. So this week, We have interviewed John Sedgwick. John is the author of a brand new book called War of Two, Alexander Hamilton, Aaron Burr, and the duel that stunned the nation. Now, I'm sure you've heard of Alexander Hamilton. He's famously one of the founding fathers of the United States. He was a chief aide to General George Washington and one of the most influential interpreters and promoters of the Constitution. Okay. Many of you may or may not know who Aaron Burr is. I kind of did. And I'll tell you, my history lesson came from that Got Milk commercial. You ever see the one where he's like, Aaron Burr? He's like, who who shot Alexander Hamilton? And, you know, if you know what I'm saying, you've seen it. If not, I sound like an idiot. But, okay, here's the thing. Aaron Burr was not only the third vice president of the United States, he's also the man who shot and killed Alexander Hamilton in a duel. So in this episode, we're going to talk to John Sedgwick about this book, War of Two, that talks about the history of this duel. What happened? Why were they even dueling in the first place? Why did anybody duel? What happened to Aaron Burr after he ran away, essentially, upon killing Alexander Hamilton? And perhaps most interestingly, how do we know all this? Well, we're going to uncover all of that in this interview as it becomes not really a history lesson, but just a a, a mental exercise on how divisive politics have been dating back to basically George Washington. So sit back, enjoy another episode from Smart People Podcast where we try to expand that knowledge base that we all have. Remember, you can find us at smartpeoplepodcast.com. And be sure to subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss any of the upcoming episodes, which I can guarantee are also fantastic. Thanks so much for joining us. Let us know what you think about the show on Twitter at SmartPeoplePod. Going to turn it over to John Sedgwick, 
as we discuss his new book, War of Two, Alexander Hamilton, Aaron Burr, and the duel that stunned the nation. John, I first want to say thanks so much for being on the show. Uh, excited to talk to you and learn about about our history. Well, thank you. It's great to be here, and I'd love to talk to you about it as, and tell you as much as I know. So here's the thing. We're, we're talking about today your, your brand new book, War of Two, Alexander Hamilton, Aaron Burr, and the Duel That Stunned the Nation. I have to tell you, I am not a student of history. I dedicate that mostly to poor history teachers. No one ever made it interesting. So when when we first started talking about doing this interview, I didn't do any research at first. And I said, what do I know about Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr? Here's what I know. Alexander Hamilton was important. I know he wrote the Federalist Papers. And I know he was a president at one point. Aaron Burr, all I, the only time I'd ever heard his name was that Got Milk commercial. Uh-huh. Do you know the one I'm talking about? Of course I do. Where the guy's like, Aaron Burr, and he can't get out. Yeah. <laughs> and so I was like, this is fantastic. Finally, uh-huh. I'm going to learn. So you have a, a tough task ahead of you to basically okay. cram all of this 400-page book or whatever it is into 50 minutes. Hey, no problem. There's a lot of padding <laughs> in that book, so we'll, we'll strip that out and get down to the essence here to, today. So let's let's first talk about what I found most interesting when I immediately started, which was the last letter that ever came from Alexander Hamilton uh, was written to your great 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 grandfather. Correct. Tell me yeah. about that. What did you find? How did you find that? What did it say? Well, it's an amazing document. Uh, I uh, had been doing a book about my family's. Um, history, six generations of us Sedgwicks, going back to the man that you mentioned, Theodore Sedgwick, six generations back, who was the Speaker of the House in 1800, and therefore he was the one who was in the big, um, in the big chair when the most uh, sort of epic uh, um, election of our entire history occurred when Jefferson and Burr were tied for in the Electoral College for the vote, and they had to go through 36 rounds of balloting from the House of Representative delegations before um, the resolution was finally reached and Jefferson, of course, was elected. Anyway, that was my man Theodore, you know, sort of a big mm. cheese back then. And so he, he was in this unusual position of being a friend not only to Hamilton because he was a fellow Federalist, meaning he was in the same party, and he was pushing through a lot of uh, um, Hamilton's legislative agenda, but he was also a friend of Burr's. And this was like something that didn't happen. It was like being a friend of the Kardashians and uh, of Bach. (laughs) (laughs) you just can't conceive of it Um, anyway but Burr was a friend from uh, Stockbridge where Theodora had had his house a house that I should say is still owned by the family it was built in 1785 and and so it made some sense that that Alexander Hamilton would write his last letter to Theodore but of course Hamilton didn't know it was going to be his last letter. I think he hoped it wouldn't be his last letter. (laughs) Um, But it turned out, of course, that it was his last letter. And it was collected first by the family. It was treasured for many years, many generations by the family, until it was finally in the middle of the 20th century um, given up to this wonderful archive in Massachusetts of letters of this kind called the Massachusetts Historical Society, a great bastion uh, of history in the Fenway section of Boston. And I would go there often to do the research on my family because they had the largest collection. In fact, they had virtually all of the papers of the Sedgwicks going back until to, to Theodore and even a little bit before. And in Toto, incredibly enough, it makes the largest single collection of family papers anywhere in the United States. But their prized holding was this letter from Alexander Hamilton to my ancestor, and they had it in a special case up front. That was a little bit off track from what I was writing, and so I hadn't really looked for it. And the the guy who was running the MHS tapped me on the shoulder one day when I was working in the um, in the reading room, he says, I have something to show you. And he goes and he takes me to this glass case where the, um, the letter is placed on a little um, glass sort of perch and sort of ankled up and I can read it. And my goodness, there it is. And it's perfect handwriting, totally lucid. 
And it's very casual. You know, it starts out saying, I've been meaning to basically, I've been meaning to catch up with you, Theodore. I'm really busy. Um, there's a couple of letters from you outstanding. I'd really like to, to deal with them now. I've been a little pressed. <laughs> like this. And so he then answers. And what he says, though, when he gets into it, is two things that are extremely pertinent, I think, to the duel. And we'll get into this more later. But he says two things that are quite unexpected. And one of them is that he says, I will be heartbroken if the empire is dismembered. I would be heartbroken if the empire is dismembered. What he means by that is that Burr, right then, had been heading up what was called the Northern Conspiracy. In, the, in New England's hatred of Jefferson, who was the polar opposite of Hamilton and the Federalists, that they wanted to secede. And they wanted, in order to get some merchant, mercantile backing, they needed to include the huge state of New York. And so how do you get New York? You get New York because you get Burr. Burr had been running to be the governor of New York. He was a major figure in New York. If they had Burr, they had something going. So Burr was in play for this. It was going to divide the nation in two. And Burr said, okay, yeah, maybe I'll think about this. And word got back to Hamilton, and that's what he said. He said, I will be heartbroken. So that's anti-Burr number one. Hmm. Anti-Burr number two is this other thing, which is a little harder to track, which is that he says basically that the thing that I fear most in this country is democracy. And you go, uh-oh, that's an odd thing for the founder of the republic to say, uh, um, based on democratic principles. But what he meant by that wasn't the democracy that we mean, a universal franchise and everybody votes and it's terrific. The, instead, it meant that the he was anxious about the popular will being expressed too much in government. He distrusted the masses um, extremely. He felt they were uneducated, that they were prone to, um, to whims, to easily, over-easily influenced by demagogues, and that they were people, this was a situation to be watched out for. Well, Burr was the first uh, candidate for any office in the United States to do what we now think of as retail politics, of going door to door um, in New York City and elsewhere in the state, soliciting votes in person and telling them what he is for. Well, to Hamilton, that was appalling that he could say anything to these people because they wouldn't know. And he much preferred the old-fashioned way that Washington and many others and every other candidate had done, which is to for the candidate himself to stay closeted behind closed doors in his home or office and let his friends do the campaigning by surrogate. Well, so... He, so Burr does this other way. He gets the people behind him. He figured to, to Hamilton, he's the head of a rabble. This is mobocracy. It's like the French Revolution. There's going to be blood in the streets, and he's totally against it. And what and what I read into that is that this is the last thing he wrote before he went off to the duel. It was obviously top on his mind. And if those were the reasons, that really alters our understanding of what the duel was really about. The duel has been said to be about a well, matter of... Why don't we... Well, let's... Let, before Because I don't want to give away the, the biggest part of the duel. Sure. That, that's going to be a whole section. But, Here we go. Yeah. But before we get into that, there's so many things that in that description, I, I just... Okay. Hamilton... Well, first, I'm trying to think about how to approach this. Let's talk about who Alexander Hamilton was, because, again, I'm not I don't know a ton. Right. And, and I really want to, because sure. the second part I want to know, I want to understand more about this belief that, you know, the masses really shouldn't play as big a role in democracy as what I'm assuming. And you'll correct me if I'm wrong, really is these, you know, uh, educated white guys sitting right. in a room, kind of what we're talking about today, right? We have exactly. people who are like, no, 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 we ne all need to vote. But then you have still this centralized power. So first, let's learn about Hamilton. Then I want to learn about that and how it relates to today. Uh, that's brilliant, because let me just touch on that. And then we'll go more deeply into Hamilton, because he's the man behind that idea. Mm -hmm. 
the, basically what you have is um, a government of the few or a government of the many. That's the choice that America faced at the time. Hamilton was for the few, the few who were educated, who were invested in society, who could be trusted. And then there is the many who were actually influenced and affected by all the decisions that were going to be going on in Washington. So who should decide? And that's the big issue that any democracy faces and our country faces now. But to get back to Hamilton, Hamilton was on its face the last person you would think of to espouse that idea, that he was a penniless immigrant from the tiny sugar island of Nevis uh, uh, when he arrived in New York City um, in the 1773, and when he was a late teenager, like 17. And he had come from nothing. His mother had died when he was 12 or 13. He was obliged. His father simply disappeared. He had to um, he had to scrounge for money. He was able to land a job in, in what amounted to a counting house, a mercantile farm firm in um, in Nevis that was actually headquartered in New York. He was the guy who was in charge of all the shipping that um, that would go into and out of the firm for the firm of Kruger that that was set up there. So that and this guy was thirteen. You know, if he'd be dealing with these incredibly gruff, difficult, surly sea captains who weren't going to take it from a freaking 13-year-old, but he was he would stand up to them and say, no, we don't want you to go to the Lesser Antilles. We want you to go around the Cape of Good Hope and that we want you to bring not 17 cattle, but 14 crocodile or whatever, you know. And, and they would say, you know, and he had to do this. And this was, it turns out, the his the basis the heavy basis of his understanding of how a global economy works and also how a national economy works and that was the um critical information and training for him when he became the, the Secretary of the Treasury at the age of 30. Anyway, so he comes to New York. Um, he's set up by a, a um, he had the good fortune of running into a minister named um, Knox, who was um, taken by this strapping young lad who'd written a brilliant poem about a hurricane or an account of a hurricane on Nevis. He says, this guy is incredible. And we should get together a fund to take it to send it to New York and get educated. So that's how he got there. And originally he was going to go to Princeton. But he'd heard about this guy, Aaron Burr, who had gone through Princeton far more quickly than it looked like Hamilton was going to be able to, and Hamilton was the guy, kind of guy who wasn't going to go slower than anybody. He was going to go the fastest through whatever. So he said, to heck with Princeton, I'm going to go to Columbia instead, or King's College, as they said. And then he, um, and he gets set up, it's, he's there at the time of the revolution, and that he is one of the first to realize the full implications and likely consequences of the revolution. He's extraordinarily far-seeing. He's, he's a student of war and of history and of the economy during this period, so that he sees that this is not just a, a small issue of rights between a large country and a small one, but ultimately an economic struggle for these independent colonies to cohere into something that could possibly stand up to England as an economic unit. And he, but he's committed to the war from a pretty early age, um, and he becomes you know, first a captain in a local infantry, and then he gets noticed by Washington and taken by him to be his chief legislative Aid, his chief, um, sorry, aide de camp. Well, let me yeah. let me ask you a question there. How uh, how does Washington find him, and kind of how is that set up? The war back then, right? You just choose a side. Do you uh, go knock on the general's door? I mean, how you know? I'm trying Good to figure question. out how he meets essentially the you know the man i mean george washington let's be honest you know yeah well you know at that time george washington wasn't i mean yes he was the man but he was also a guy uh, you know he was a guy trying to run this the theoretically vast but actually rather scattered 
inept army of farmers. He was beside himself trying to get this organized into a fighting force. And he was desperate for anybody who seems at all sensible and smart and able that can do. And that they meet um, actually in the, the Battle of White Plains, among other places. And that he's he was at the time that the, um, Hamilton was in charge of the artillery. And he was one of the few soldiers who was able to keep his head during this route of the American forces. There were so many routes at that point that, you know, it was loss after loss after loss. Mm. This, it looked like they couldn't keep a team on the field. And, um, but Hamilton was able to identify a, um, a position of the Redcoats and obliterate it with some very targeted and smart uh, um, artillery fire. And that got the attention of Hamilton, basically, who is that guy? The thing you have to remember about Hamilton, he was tiny. He was five foot six, maybe seven. He had wasp-waisted, meaning he was just incredibly thin. You could put it, your hands around him hmm. and your fingers would touch. Uh, um, it just He was as slight as you could think. He looked like nobody. But he had a way of carrying himself, and did he have a mouth on him? He could talk your head off, and it would be incredibly interesting and incredibly persuasive. He would surround you with his ideas. He would lift you up with his ideas. He was totally on top of everything. And Washington absolutely noticed this. He was craving someone like that. He said, hey, how would you like to work for me? And within mm. um, within days, it, um, Hamilton is, is set up as his chief um, aide and that he's the one who's actually, you know, in those times, it's amazing that a lot of the soldiers, it's such a tense terrifying experience that a lot of them took sick for weeks, sometimes months at a time afterwards. They're so stressed out by the war. Mm -hmm. And Washington was soon after, he was, um, he had to take to his bed. He was unable to keep up with his correspondence. And so that Hamilton just stepped right in and spoke for Washington as if he was Washington. He signed papers as if he was Washington's co-equal. And that, um, and he, and indeed he was right. He said everything that Washington would say and he said it better. Um, and Washington was glued to the hip with this guy. He just knew that he was essential to the operation of the of his army. Wow. Moving past that, if, if we're looking back and we're defining Hamilton as, you know, a founding father, what gives him that role? Let's talk about kind of the Federalist Papers, his political beliefs, what those were. For, for sure. those of us like myself that are extremely uneducated on this? No, it's a really good question, and, mo and I was not educated on this uh, um, either. I think the best way to explain it is that there are two strains of political thought in America that were established at the time of the Founding Fathers and continue through to today. One of them is Hamiltonian. The other is Jeffersonian. The Jeff as I just said, Hamilton was never a president, but he had presidential influence, and he started the first party. Jefferson started the second party, but it was started in opposition to Hamilton. So in effect, Hamilton started them both, one pro-Hamilton and the other anti-Hamilton. What do they consist of? Hamilton was a big believer in the establishment. He believed in power. Uh, he believed in concentrated power. He believed in a strong central government. He believed that the states should be subordinate to a strong central government and that the country would only thrive if the states worked together at the direction of the federal government. And, uh, um, and indeed, that he was, that vision was critical to the early success of a country that could easily have fallen apart into its constituent elements. Because remember, when they started, they were 13 colonies. And these colonies under the Articles of Confederation were essentially independent sovereign nations. You had to basically apply. If you were in New York, you had to strike a deal with New Jersey if you were going to run your uh, merchandise through there, or are you going to, to use a, a canal that passed uh, along the borders of each. That, that everything was a product of negotiation. It wasn't assumed that it was all one. It was assumed that it was 13. Well, that was he knew that was never going to fly. And so he was able to coordinate his major uh, um, effect in the early government and is still the, um, as I say, a powerful strain in political thought today is to think of the United States as one unit headed by a single powerful federal government. Then in opposition to that, of course, is Jefferson. Jefferson says, 
I don't like any federal government telling me what to do out in Virginia. Now, I want to learn from my, to, to follow my local government, my state government, my local uh, um, government. What, that, that I don't trust those big wigs in, in New York as it was originally or Washington as it was later. I mean, does this sound familiar to you? <laughs> I mean, these, this is the, the essential dichotomy in American thought. That, and that right now we are living so much in a Jeffersonian age. Right. There is such powerful distrust of the federal government. Well, what they're distrustful of is Hamilton, because Hamilton believed that the federal government was the only organization, the only agency that was going to be able to unite the United States and allow it to stand up to other countries around the world, and that he created that. All right, I hate to interrupt, but let's take a minute for our sponsor. This week's Smart People podcast is sponsored by Northern Catch. The delicious new seafood subscription service connecting you with the pristine waters of Alaska by providing you with sustainable, wild Alaskan seafood delivered straight to your door. So you've heard us in the past couple episodes talking about Northern Catch. Have you subscribed yet? If not, you need to do it. As many of you know, there are so many benefits to eating healthy, sustainable wild-caught seafood. For example, the USDA recommends people consume at least 8 ounces of seafood per week to get those healthy benefits of omega-3 fatty acids. The problem is, a lot of the seafood you buy, you're just not sure where it's coming from. That's where Northern Catch comes in. Northern Catch delivers wild-caught, sustainable seafood straight to your door from the cold waters of Alaska. Your box will contain four varieties of Marine Stewardship Council certified fish and or shellfish, depending upon what's in season at the time. So if you want to enjoy delicious wild Alaskan seafood, head to northerncatch.fish. That's right, it's .fish, and donate $10 to the Alaskan Marine Conservation Council. When you do that, you'll receive a captain's card that gets you a $50 discount on the first month of your Alaskan seafood subscription. So head on over to northerncatch.fish and sign up today. Now back to our show. Well, we got to talk about this. And I'm going to ask your opinion, given your research, maybe trying to put political beliefs aside. But we look at Hamilton. We look at people like Alexander Hamilton as we call him a founding father, right? Right. Correct. However, if you were to take his beliefs and run him for president today, he would get he'd get, you know, things thrown at him on stage right what i think oh no no not at i mean if hamilton was able to present his own ideas Mm -hmm. you would get a lot of he would get a lot of support if some schmo was to present hamilton ideas he would not get support for a lot of those things the ideas are still powerful the expression of them in the popular in um in politics right now is pathetic and so defensive yeah. Okay. That's very because what I'm what I'm wondering is right. If you just take it at its uh, general kind of in a general sense, you know, we should have centralized government and that runs kind of everyone else's decision making. Right. Uh, and then yes, if you were to put somebody up there with those beliefs, like they wouldn't make it far. And what I find amazing is, I think that he played such a key role, like you said, in the strength of our country when we were kind of divided in these colonies. We needed that centralization. What I'm getting at is oftentimes we don't realize that what the founding fathers believed in doesn't need to translate exactly into today's world, given how different things are. And oftentimes we look back and say, well, you know, Hamilton wrote this or Jefferson wrote this. He's a founding father, smartest guy ever. It should be, we should take it at, at face value. And I just personally, I'm putting my own opinion. I'd like you to tell me yours, but I just think that that's, Uh, narrow-minded, short-sighted. We need to think in terms of today's environment. Well, I think that's true. We obviously need to think in terms of today's environment because that's where we're living. But I think that, and Hamilton's prescriptions for for the late 18th 18th century uh, um, are never going to fly now. But the basic impulse of his ideas, I think, will. I mean, let's take take an issue like um, climate change. Well, there's no way that the states and local municipalities are going to be able to make any impact on the the biggest issue of our time, right? That's something that only the federal, uh, um, only federal power, federal organization, and federal ideas are going to be able to influence. Because you have to 
it, everything has to work as one. You can't have Georgia and Indiana opting out and only the, um, Ohio and California going along, you know, or it's just not going to work. The, um, that's the kind of thing. I mean, like the interstate highway system, that is a Hamilton idea. The, the, um, the putting a man on the moon, that uh-huh. is a Hamilton idea. The, and what's happened is that Reagan was able to persuade the public that the federal government isn't the answer, as he said, it's the, it isn't the solution, it's the problem. Well, that was such an easy, clear directive. And it rang true for so many people who didn't want to pay taxes, who saw Washington as being a long way away from their lives, headed up by a bunch of pointy heads that they didn't identify with and probably didn't know. And that really you know, had, its, had, its, had its resonance. But you see, to Hamilton, that was just the kind of mobocracy malarkey that he would made him froth at the mouth because he thought the federal government is the solution because there is no other. um, And some of these problems are so big, they can only be handled at the federal level. And I, you know, I, I... I think that's true, too. I mean, I think that, you know, I mean, you think about the military. You wouldn't let the military be organized state by state. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Well, it's because it has to be work. It has to all hang together as a single unit. There are many things in our, um, you know, or the just think of um, the issues related to energy. And the, the government has to set certain standards for energy production and to protecting the environment and things like that that, you know, have to be across the board or even educational standards although that's you know very controversial uh, uh, there are many things that uh, where the federal government is really the in a position uh, um, the only one in a position to make a serious difference yeah i use the example of because my dad talked to me about this a long time ago putting a man on the moon i probably said that in the in this podcast before in that you know, it's one of those things where no company would have done it because it wasn't profitable. We didn't see the long-term implications. You couldn't really, you know, uh, you didn't have the resources, all types of things for anyone else to do it other than the largest government, you know, centralized government on the planet. And what's come of it, when you think about it, is, I mean, almost every technological advancement we have today when it comes to satellites and, you know, those things. So, and that was great. I apologize for perhaps getting off topic, but one of the things I no, want... it is the topic. Because, <laughs> That's true. I mean, truly. I mean, this is what why Hamilton is so important. I mean, you see Hamilton the musical. I don't know if you're no, going to I haven't. This out. But it, you know, people. Have, it's a hot thing here in New York, and everybody here has seen it. And it's, I'm sure that people elsewhere are at least vaguely aware of it. But it's interesting that the Hamilton that's presented there, the endearing Hamilton of that show, is one who is up from nothing and is constantly up against larger literally larger people. He's such a little guy. And that he's always, um, you know, he's a striver. And we can get behind that. But in fact, that's not the historical... Hamilton. The historical Hamilton was not a striver. He was the last person to describe. He was already there. He was accomplished. He was superior. He wasn't inferior. He was the guy who knew. And that gets to what this other um, this other point about Hamiltonianism, which is that is such a large and commanding idea that that's not a scrappy little position. That's a confident position. That's one that's that can see big things in a big way and that's that's the way he was well and and so what that makes me wonder is were politics more divided then than they are today um yes and no Uh, i think that there was a serious and upfront ideological division between hamiltonianism and jeffersonianism as i was saying but one is central the other is diffuse the uh, one is industrial the other is agrarian Uh, um, one is for the people and the other is for the establishment Uh, um, so that there are some clear divisions and and therefore and with them some clear um it's clearly different the ambitions, I would say, but but what do we have now? 
Now we have a Republican Party that's all over the lot. Do you have some populist streak? Do you have some angry streaks that's really hard to know what they're, you know, anti-immigrant kind of anger? And then you have a lot you're of... You're not naming then, names there? He just happens know, to own a lot of real estate? <laughs> yeah, I don't know who you're thinking of. But, no, um, but you end, you know, with that, the, the demagoguery that Hamilton uh, um, was so afraid of. And, the, and then you have, a, you know, a few remnants of the Romney-esque establishment. You know, it's a very, it's a mixed stew uh, you know and it's hard to say right now what the rep what the essential republican party represents mm -hmm. you know except that it's generally anti-government but it's not anti-government as hillary clinton pointed out when it comes to people's reproductive rights then it's pro-government and that you can government can say no you can't do this and no you can't do that well the republican uh, party stands for anti-democratic part i mean anti-liberal party that's really all it is you know it's anti-democratic right. Public. Well, it's the party of party. no. Uh, it's the, 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 the whatever the Democrats are going to propose, they are opposed. Yeah, and they would if they have their druthers, and it looks like they might, they would close down the whole show. But it and, almost and, sounds like Jeff. If Jefferson and Hamilton were in a room, they'd be the same way. I mean, I don't know, but that's. Yes, they would. Um, interestingly, I mean, that's why I find Jefferson to be utterly cynical. Um, and I really, the more I read about Jefferson, hallowed as he is, as the writer of the Declaration of Independence, you know, one of the great pieces of writing, uh, um, that he is, I think, personally despicable. And I just lost all respect for him. The wow. More, the more I read about him, you know, this slaveholder who is um, keeping, who is especially housing liberty um this guy who's very airy fairy who styles himself as the a man of the people i mean it just it didn't wash with me hmm. well that's one of the things that i guess maybe that's where that previous question i or statement i made was like we tend to look at these people as omnipotent almost and then so i, I look at gun control right well, you know, that's that's been part of our country forever. And you have to look at the people who put that in there and why they put it in there oftentimes. And right. we just don't. And, and stories like yours and this uh, highlight, you know, yes, oftentimes they're extremely bright people, but we have just as bright people today. Right. Right. Well, there was an unusual mix of people. I mean, the reason the, the founding fathers were a kind of a crazy bunch. I mean, each one had his excesses. Each one was impossible in his own way. I mean, Hamilton certainly was. Adams was. Madison was. Monroe was kind of a non-entity. Uh, um, you know, the, it's, only Washington was a truly integrated personality who was reliable and that you knew what you were going to get from one day to the next. Everybody else was all over the place. But they had a... The, their skills were wonderfully complementary. They all believed basically in the same thing. They all had a contribution to make that was accepted by the others. And this this kind of they had a sort of wonderful rivalry going on where each spurred the other on to deeper and more original thought. And that's it, it's the the critical mass of several of them that, that really made them such it was like the Beatles, quite honestly. Hmm. Uh, um, that not only did the Beatles as four, but they had the Rolling Stones and everybody else to compete with and to try and outdo and that that if there weren't so many of them at the time, they, none of them would have been so great. Mm -hmm. Same thing with them. I mean, th this was quite an astonishing political class. It was really the first time that any of them had been able to be in the government. So there was a thrill to it because obviously the government had been across the ocean in London. Sure. Uh, uh, um, so, yes, it, there were some um, some real opportunity there and they were very ambitious men. I mean, they, and this was the way that they were going to uh, um, put their stamp on the future. So so let's talk about this duel and, and this guy, Aaron Burr, that, uh, I mean, look, maybe I'm wrong, but nobody really knows about. I mean, in comparison to the, the names we've thrown around, Jefferson, yes. Hamilton, you know, right. Washington, it's just some guy and he ends up killing him. So let's talk about who he sure. is and what happened. Well, I see Burr as a very shady figure. I, I find him really interesting. If I were at a dinner party, I would sit next to him. I would. Uh, you don't have to sit next to Hamilton because wherever he is, he's going to hold the table <laughs> and you're going to hear everything he says. <laughs> but, uh, but Burr would s whisper slyly to you some cynical but hilarious remark about someone else and you would just be doubled over. He, um, he, he's the kind of guy who wrote almost nothing down. He kept it all in his head and then when he did write it down he wrote it in code 
Uh, uh, he was that cautious, that interior, that dark. Uh, um, you never, nobody ever really knew where he was coming from, uh, um, and let alone where he was going. You know, even in this moment when he had the presidency within his grasp, he was, as I said before, he was tied with Jefferson for the in the Electoral College. He was in the House. He could have said just a few things to a few people that would have made it seem as though he was more with them than Jefferson was. He would have won their vote. He would have been elected president, and he never did it. And this, but after having spent his whole life trying to climb to that position, um, instead, you know, he didn't even come to Washington for the vote or even to observe what was going on. He stayed in Albany that, um, because his prized daughter Theodosia was getting married and he wanted to uh, oversee that uh, um, their their marriage and never never came down for the most important event in his political life why I mean people have no idea well anybody anybody that names their daughter Theodosia uh, I I'm not going to trust him anyway well it was after okay we'll get this his (laughs) wife was also named Theodosia oh come uh, on I know. And <laughs> apologies to anyone out there named Theodosia. <laughs> yeah, well, there probably aren't many. But yeah. the um, but Theodosia, um, his wife, when she would, uh, he loved her absolutely. There are wonderful letters back and forth. A rich intellectual, emotional, and sexual relationship uh, um, that is very clearly and frankly expressed in the letters and quite wonderful. That when she gets sick towards the end of her life, uh, um, that and she is um, stuck in New York, can't uh, manage to get to. Washington to see Burr, he basically writes her off and says um, and stops responding to her letters and sending much more his 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 letters instead to her daughter Theodosia, not to herself. Wow, uh, yeah, it, it's just terribly, cold. terribly cold. <laughs> but the thing to remember about Burr is that when he was two, he suffered a series of calamities that nobody would ever, uh, um, which are going to mark anyone. That within nine months. His father died, his mother died, his grandfather died, who had come back, come down to take care of him as his surrogate father. And then uh, about six months after that, his grandmother died. So the four caretakers in his life wow. died before he was three. And remember that two and three, those are the year, years when you're first coming into consciousness. If you have an early memory, that's probably when it happened, when it comes from. So you're right on the edge of realizing what life is. If it happened before, it would have been like a totally a subject of total, complete ignorance. If it happened later, it would have been more substantial. Right then, it was like, ah, wow. you know, what is life really about? Life is a story of loss that and that's i think the message from his childhood and it's also a message that i don't really know where my place is you know who are my people what am i doing uh, um who's going to take care of me there is this sense of drift uh, um with him and so and a feeling that nothing really matters that um so that that was burr and so okay so burr's this guy he's smart he's you know coded and all that he uh runs for the presidency right he uh, misses by a minuscule amount, right? And then becomes vice president. That's right. Okay. Yeah, that's, in those days, that's the way it worked. It was, uh, the runner-up gets the vice presidency. Yeah. You know, which uh, I kind of like that because then uh, you're forced to have both sides of the aisle, and I don't know. Anyways, that's a different discussion. No, you would think so, but um, but it works out that they hate each other and won't have it. They, everybody freezes their vice president out anyway. Right. So but, so Jefferson yeah. hates Burr because they're basically from complete opposite ideologies. Yes. Now, why yes. does Hamilton decide to square off with him? I uh, mean, in a duel. <laughs> yeah, in the biggest way in you can possibly square off. <laughs> well, the thing that Hamilton had always distrusted and then hated and then actually reviled Burr for was the fact that he wasn't playing ball, that everybody back then took one position or the other. Either you were on the Hamilton side or on the Jefferson side. Life, you have to understand, was divided in two. There were two kinds of medicine. There was medicine for the Republicans, medicine for the Federalists. There were two banks. There were medicine uh, banks for Federalists. There were banks for Republicans. Styles of dress. Uh, um, There was federal style. There was a problem. There was. That's the way life was. It was divided in two. And for him, not to take sides was like what? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so Burr 
um, just he would sort of edge over into the be a federalist on certain things or a republican on other things well what was he he was like a, a a cat that was a dog in some ways, but a cat in others. You just didn't know what to make of this animal. And so he, um, that really set Hamilton off. He figured that a man of principle had to choose and had to be consistent. And the fact that Burr was veering around, was, it was made it very clear to him that he was doing this only for personal gain, that he would take any position so long as it advanced him politically, that he didn't fundamentally care. And that is what made him uh, seem, in the famous word, dangerous to Hamilton. And when he said this at a dinner party in uh, um, Albany in, in February of 1804, that, uh, when Burr is towards the end of his term at vice, as vice president, he's going to get dumped by Jefferson. He'd been scrambling to get another pretty good job and ran for governor of New York and got pasted. Uh, um, and in part because Hamilton went all around the, the uh, state saying terrible things about Burr. Well, Burr, when he heard that Hamilton had said that he was dangerous, he put it together with all of the the diatribes that he'd been um, issuing against Burr for the last few months in the in the gubernatorial campaign, and he called Hamilton out, which is which is a sort of a term of art for setting up a duel. You basically you challenge someone to explain what they meant by some terrible insult. And if they can explain it away, then that's the end of it. But if they can't, then to the dueling ground they go because um, you, that's the, there, it was a matter of honor. See, honor is the, is the idea that people don't get anymore. That honor was everything to the, in the early republic to these politicians. If you didn't hang on to your honor, you didn't hang on to anything that was valuable at all. It was like their manhood. I mean, really, that honor was their pride. It was their virtue. It was their public respectability. It was their masculinity. It was their verve. It was everything good about them. And if somebody questioned their honor, that meant that there was nothing good about them. They were nothing. And so they just couldn't allow that. And so Burr took this as an honor question. And he put it back to Hamilton saying, you know, what do you mean by this? And when and Hamilton couldn't take it back because he'd been saying it all over the state, all over the country. Um, and if he took it back now, then he was going to lose face. So these two guys were stuck. And they had, once the issue was raised, there was nothing for it but to go to the dueling ground and have it out. This episode is brought to you by lynda.com the online learning platform with over 3,000 on-demand video courses to help you strengthen your business, technology, and creative skills. For a free 10-day trial, visit lynda.com slash smart people. That's L-Y-N-D-A dot com slash smart people. lynda.com is for the problem solvers, for the curious, for people who want to make things happen. Maybe you want to master Excel, learn negotiation tactics, build a website, or boost your Photoshop skills. Go to lynda.com and feed your curious mind. Some of the courses I recommend are Growth Hacking Fundamentals, Getting Things Done, and Bootstrapping Your Business. I've been taking lynda.com's course on Growth Hacking Fundamentals, and I absolutely love it. The videos are amazing, the instructors are amazing, and I am learning a ton. With a lynda.com membership, you can watch and learn from top experts who are passionate about teaching. You can download tutorials and watch them on the go, including access on your iOS or Android device. And best of all, you get to learn at your own pace. Courses are structured so you can watch them from start to finish or consume them in bite-sized pieces. So listen up. Here's what you need to do. Your lynda.com membership will give you unlimited access to training on hundreds of topics all for one low flat rate. Whether you're looking to become an industry expert, you're passionate about a hobby, or you just want to learn something new, we want you to visit lynda.com slash smart people and sign up for your free 10-day trial. That's l-y-n-d-a dot com slash smart people. And now back to the show. So I still, I mean, okay, so... At this point, Hamilton is what's his position politically? Like uh, he's the what? Head he's of the... out of he, he's he's just the he's the founder and kind of the the brains behind the Federalist Party. He's the if there were a director of a party, that's what he would be. And did he have something to do with the Treasury? 
He had been the Secretary of the Treasury and that he was the one organizing the economic structure of the United States. But he was out of that by then. So he's just going around talking trash about Burr, even though Burr is on his way out as well. Well, Burr doesn't want to think of himself as on his way out, and neither does Hamilton, but they both, you know, as, as history shows, they both were. The thing also to remember is that Hamilton, just three years before, his son had been killed in a duel in which the son had tried to stick up for his father's name. And, uh, what? Yeah. Um, so that they, uh, um, so that he had it out with this guy, Colonel Eakins, who, uh, um, who just wouldn't, uh, he said the terrible word, this is funny, but the, the word that really got them to the, tur- to the dueling ground was rascal. Call them a rascal. Back then, that was like calling him uh, a word that you can't say on the air. But you can imagine. And so you can say anything. Would that be like asshole or would it be way worse? Uh, it would be way worse. Okay. Mother- uh, uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> Uh, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a diss, you know, right. in temporary terms. It's like a really serious diss. It was unforgivable. And so that they had it out. And indeed, it, um, Hamilton's treasured son, Philip, was killed. And, Those guys and, should, all you should have done growing up, like today, you know, I played baseball my whole life. Just teach people how to shoot and you'll be good to get. You can just yell at anyone and then kill them. Well, that's true. But, you know, these are very heavy guns. It's a very short space. He says 10 yards. 10 yards. You know, you would think you would hit anything in 10 yards. But it's a heavy gun. It's about the weight of a brick. You're scared shitless, if you can use that word. (laughs) Um, And so your hand's like wobbling all over the place. And you have only a couple, you know, you have to fire quickly. Right. Because you don't want to get shot first. You want to shoot the guy and be done with this. Um, So bang, uh, you know, it goes bang, bang right away. Mm -hmm. And they both miss usually, but not in this case. And this is one other thing that's very curious about the about the duel is that people don't know for sure who did shoot first and Hamilton had said all the way along that he wasn't going to try and shoot Burr he didn't believe in dueling which makes you wonder why he's there in the first place but he is there and so the question was was he going to try and shoot Burr or not and the argument was and this is what um, really decided the the relative reputations of the two men it was put forth after Hamilton was shot and killed that Hamilton had not tried to shoot at Burr at all, that his gun, off, gun went off only when he fired into the trees accidentally after he was blasted and mm. he was reeling around. Bang! Off to the trees it goes. And in fact, his second went back and supposedly found a branch that had been pierced by the bullet. Hmm. Yeah, right. You yeah. Know, as if you can find that. Right. So everybody in New York says, oh, that Burr, you know, God, he's a he's a freaking murderer. Right. And, that's what Burr had to live with for the rest of his life. But it now turns out that more like that there was a peculiar delay. It wasn't bang, bang, as you would think. It was bang, bang. And what had happened, most likely, was that Hamilton had fired, but he had, as he had said he would, thrown away his ball, which is to say he just aimed wildly, not right. at Burr. Right. Burr didn't know this. When a, when a shot is fired, you don't know where the bullet's gone. You right. just heard it fired. So he's thinking, well, that guy's going to shoot, is trying to shoot me. I'll plug him. So he has a chance. He knows the ball is gone. The way it works, you have each side shoots once, and then you have a, neck, a second round later if you need it. But uh-huh. for then, you have pretty much all the time you want <laughs> so that he then can draw a bead on Hamilton and fire and kill him. Can you jump around? Like, Can you try to present a uh, moving target you know that's undignified and you're not no in fact the whole thing is to demonstrate sang froid that you really want to be cool and composed that's an essential part of being a gentleman of honor in this circumstance this is the dumbest thing i've ever heard well you know (laughs) not not, not what you're telling me just these people like hey i'm mad at you let's go shoot each other with these huge brick like (laughs) Guys, right. <laughs> well, Chris, you're saying that is really pissing me off, and I think yeah. tomorrow at yeah. dawn we're gonna have to have this out at yeah. Weehawken. Yeah, I'll be there. I like and I'll it. be waiting for you. <laughs> so, so t- let's let's talk about this just a little bit more. Um, sure. So they they decide they got a duel. They go to the hill. What was the name of the hill? It was called Weehawken. It was just uh, it's directly across the uh, um, Hudson River from Forty oh, okay. Second Street. It's in, in New Jersey. Okay. And is there like a crowd? 
No, no. The whole point is to get there early enough so that nobody notices you. Ah. You leave just before daybreak and you arrive just as the sun is coming up over the hills. That it's just you and the seconds and a doctor. And it's sort of cute that since it is illegal, they want to make sure that the seconds can have, what is it called, credible deniability. And so they turn away when the shots are fired so they can say later truthfully they didn't see any duel seconds being the uh the seconds timer being your your buddy uh, you bring your best buddy uh, uh. and uh, he brings the guns he marks out <laughs> the distance and he says the magic word present which is when you are that it's okay to fire that's crazy so so burr shoots hamilton he's dead burr takes off he's a fugitive now and a murderer right um is that the end of it no, hardly. This is this is the end of um, Act Three, uh, um, and there's an Act Four, which is almost impossible to comprehend. But Burr, as I said at the beginning, was uh, interested in this secessionary movement in the North, and he didn't end up going along with that. But he did do one in the West, as you remember uh, um, or may remember that that Jefferson did one major thing in office, which was to acquire the Louisiana Purchase that uh, from Napoleon, and that doubled the landmass of the United States and everything beyond the Allegheny. So it was uh, um, new land. Well. Burr wanted to take it. He wanted to establish that as his own personal empire. And he figured that it was very sparsely populated. It was a long way from Washington. People didn't care about what Washington wanted out there, going back to this Jefferson versus Hamilton thing. And that he thought that he could just take it, that nobody would really care. Uh, um, and he wouldn't take very many men, and it just had to get a few influential people, and it was done. Well, so he able to line up the most powerful uh, um, soldier in the United States, the the general in charge of what they had of the armed forces, a, a complete scallywag named James Wilkinson, who played every side of every issue. And he was um, his big partner. But it turned out that Wilkinson was also in the service of the Spanish. He was a spy for the Spanish, an he was in cahoots with Burr, and he was the leading. Uh, um, so he was the top officer in the United States Army. He was like three ways. Uh, he was playing wow. this thing three ways. Well, he decided in the end that it was better to uh, um, stay in tight with Jefferson as the president then, uh, rather than run off with this very risky, flighty guy named Burr. So he basically turns Burr in. And Burr is held up on these charges of treason, which is a hanging offense, and that they don't have sufficient evidence that he actually made good on any kind of act of treason so they have to let him go and uh, um but he's his name is mud in the in the united states and he has to go off to europe where he just goes into exile essentially for four years he has no money when he leaves and he has and he's able to get no money while he was there and he was just down to pennies and what would he do with his pennies when he had them he would have he would <laughs> he would buy hookers he would take, nice. If he had a choice between bread and a prostitute, he would take the prostitute every time. That's a man who knows his priorities. Exactly. <laughs> um, and, and stranger still, he would uh, write down in detail his experiences with these various ladies of the night. And he would send them, he would collect them for his daughter. It was one very, very, very long letter to her. It was like 400 pages of a diary that he kept uh, assiduously uh, um, on his travels. And it was intended for her. Wow. Very weird. So uh, um, weird. <laughs> so finally, he's, um, he's at death's door, but he's, um, and he's hoping to get in with Napoleon. Napoleon won't have anything to do with him. He's finally able to get a boat back to um, the United States. And he lands. He's sure that everybody's going to have it in for him when he arrives. So he actually wears a false beard and uh, <laughs> um, a funny hat so that nobody will notice him. But people have forgotten all about him anyway. And then he just... And then the first thing that he discovers is that his grandson has died of a fever, and she, 
he was the one who was going to inherit this throne of his in the empire that he was going to create. And then, worse still, that he his um, daughter Theodosia um, is desperate to see him and comes north from North Carolina, where she was, uh, um, by boat, and the boat um, is shipwrecked and she dies at sea. Wow. Yeah. A tragedy, a totally. true tragedy, the a entire true. story. Well, it couldn't happen to a better God. No, um, <laughs> but, yeah, and then he lives 30 years more. He finally ends up marrying this um, very fleshy widow who was likely started out life as a prostitute herself. And then he, she has it against him because he uh, keeps his eye on other women in ways that he, she doesn't like. And they divorce, and then he dies wow. um, at age 80. Wow. Well, he, he lived a long time for back then. Yeah, and 30 years more than his nemesis, Hamilton. But <laughs> Hamilton has so much better reputation. Sure, absolutely. Well, that's what's interesting. So, okay, you know, there's a lot of detail. There's a lot more in the book. I'm so I'm so excited to go through it. I haven't, like I said, I haven't read the whole thing because I wanted to kind of hear it first sure. from you. But I'm excited about this. If we could take, let's put it this way. What takeaway after all the research, the writing, the the you know honor and and partisan politics? What does it tell you about our political system today? What would you like to tell us, um, maybe from their perspective or from yours? I'm just trying to get you know what takeaway can we use today to to maybe better our our politics or our system or just ourselves? That's a really good question. I, I to me. History of the of the country uh, um, at the national level is this funny amalgam of principle and personality, and principle and personality don't always converge. Uh, um, that at the best of times, principle and personality are very tight. At the worst of time, principle and personality are very loose. And I think what we're struggling with now is the fact that the, our political leaders are not tightly allowed, allied to their, the principles that, you know, should, that might guide our nation and that they espouse, uh, but aren't truly committed to, um, and that they don't demonstrate in their personal life and in the details of their policies that there's too much what it the, the duel really is a, is about the conflict between principle and personality Hamilton was a man of principle and Burr was a man of personality. He distrusted personality, Hamilton did. He felt that it was a will of the West who would go everywhere. And that was definitely true of Burr and that he believed that you should build your career on a firm set of principles and stick to them. Mm. And I think that, that that's what is missing today. I don't see the clear principles that, um, that people can get behind. I don't see the, the largeness that principle can give. I see the smallness that personality can give. And I think that's, uh, um, that's what you can learn from this book. I love it. Well, I think that's a great place to end it. You know, John, I, I've thoroughly enjoyed this. Like I said, if you were my history teacher, uh, life might have been different. I might know much more about these things. <laughs> well, Chris, come around to the house yeah. every day at five o'clock yeah. and I will tutor you. You'll teach me. I appreciate but, that. So the book is War of Two, Alexander Hamilton, Aaron Burr, and the duel that stunned the nation. Uh, we'll link to it at smartpeoplepodcast.com. But I wanted to give you a chance. I mean, where else can people find you, find your writing? Do you tweet, Facebook? What's going I, on? Well, I tweet as little as possible. Good but I am on, <laughs> on Facebook and I try to blog there as, as often as I can think of it. Um, and so, and I have my website that is um, johnsedgwick.biz. Sedgwick is just eight letters. Um, not the, not, there's no E in the middle. johnsedgwick.biz. And that's sort of where you can find me. I, um, at heart, I, I'm to be found within the covers of this book. I just feel that books, you know, give the best explanation of what this whole thing is about and that the blogs and the commentary is always very partial and fragmentary. And it's, you know, it's difficult as a writer to say anything um, of significance in a sort of blog or tweet. Right. Well, you especially know, in something like this. I mean, really, from what I can glean, it's, it's a history lesson told through an amazing story. And that's the way you get through dense material. 
Well, that's right. I, I used to, I mean, I'm a journalist at heart, and I think of this as the journalism of another time. That I, journalism, you know, the best magazine journalism, which I, I was in magazines for a long time, is a story. You know, that's mm-hmm. what they call them. They're stories. And I wasn't looking to write history. I was looking to write a story. This could be a novel, but it's all factual. And it's got the things that you look for in a in a novel you have extraordinary characters in unusual circumstances with a great deal of tension that is ultimately resolved and yields a greater understanding of life uh, through that and that's that's that was my ambition and that's what was so um, captivating for me about this story and captivating it is again thanks so much for being on the book war of two is out it's new i have the hardcover in front of me it's beautiful has some great images in it and can't wait to uh to to get into the details so again john thanks so much really appreciate it hey it's been a great pleasure all right have a great day okay take care bye-bye welcome back i hope you enjoyed that interview with john sedgwick you can find John's book, War of Two, Alexander Hamilton, Aaron Burr, and the Duel That Stunned the Nation on Amazon or at your local bookstore. If you do decide to purchase it through Amazon, please do not forget to use the Smart People Podcast Amazon link located at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. If you're looking for other easy and free ways to support the show, please head over to iTunes or Stitcher and leave a rating and review over there. If you'd like to reach out to the show for feedback or to leave a guest suggestion, please shoot us an email at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or send us a message on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. Please remember to stay tuned to all things Smart People Podcast over at smartpeoplepodcast.com. We've got some great interviews coming up, and we'll see you all next week. Thanks again to Prudential for sponsoring today's episode and for helping us understand how our brains are hardwired to procrastinate. Not all procrastination is created equal. Did you know that there are different types of procrastinators? There are warriors and big dreamers, buzzer beaters, and people pleasers, not to mention the distracted and the unmotivated. What's your procrastination identity? Visit bringyourchallenges.com to take the procrastination personality test and find out. Prudential, bring your challenges.